Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, welcome back from vacation. How's everything going? Where'd you go? Oh, we went out west, spent a little time in Wyoming, went to Yellowstone, the Black Hills on the way home, and we really uh, were able to recharge. It's nice to get back always, of course, and be home. There's no place like home. For sure, for sure. So we're recording this at the beginning of September 2020. I know we're coming up on harvest here quick. How are the crops looking this year, Jason? Well, before we left, crops were looking really good. I was very optimistic about harvest and, uh, you know, of course things change and uh, it's been very dry for the last couple of weeks. So it would have been nice if we'd got another rain to help finish out the crop. They're still going to be good, but um, they're struggling a little bit from the dryness and uh, we <laughs> kind of funny. We have a, seem to have a problem with bean leaf beetles, which is an insect that I never thought would cause a problem this late in the year. Yeah, that is a, a weird one. I think of bean, bean leaf beetles as an early season pest of, of soybeans. So um, I think both of us have gotten a lot of calls on that here in the last couple of weeks, or I guess the last week specifically. Speaking of bean leaf beetles, great segue, Jason. Uh, we talked to Dr. Nick Tinsley today for our podcast interview. Nick is one of our colleagues with Bear Crop Science. I kind of consider him the seed treatment expert for the Midwest. Uh, he's just a wealth of knowledge and fun fact for the audience, me and Nick went to grad school together, so I've known Nick for a long time. And thankfully, he kept those college stories close to the chest and didn't, didn't share a whole lot of that stuff on our <laughs> podcast, which I appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to get him one-on-one -on -one and record a little secret episode here, Preston. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But uh, anyway, Jason, you want to kind of give the 10,000-foot view of our conversation with Nick? Yeah, you might you might say to yourself, how interesting can seed treatments be? I mean, it's, it's it seems like a pretty basic concept, but um, I thought this was really a fascinating interview. I think that our, our listeners are in for a real treat. Nick went back to the 1600s with the history of seed treatments and took us through the present day and even looking into the future and, and the benefits they bring to growers and, and how they help protect the crops that feed the world. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview with Nick Tinsley. Nick, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you on today. To start things off, do you want to t tell us a little bit about your history and background and what you are, what you currently do? Sure, I'd be happy to. And um, also want to say uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm a fan of what you and, and Jason have done with this podcast. And uh, uh, as a listener, it's kind of interesting to be invited to, to give a talk. So uh, thanks for having me on. Like I said, my name is Nick Tinsley, and uh, I am originally from East Central Illinois, Vermilion County. So uh, as we sit here in Pike County, not too far from my original home. My background is uh, I got my uh, all three of my degrees, so bachelor's, master's, and PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And so I went to school to uh, become a doctor because uh, that's what I wanted to do coming out of high school and found out that that maybe wasn't the path for me. And I kind of needed to find a new direction. And I took a, a really interesting entomology class taught at the U of I. And uh, I did pretty well in it and it kind of came easy. So I thought, hey man, that's uh, probably something I should pursue as a career. And that kind of started me down this path. So I uh, finished with my master's and PhD in crop science with a heavy focus in entomology. And um, really uh, for my uh, PhD and postdoc, I spent a lot of time uh, working with corn rootworm. So I kind of call myself a corn rootwormologist. And uh, 
But uh, anyway, after finishing up a postdoc there, uh, I took a job with Bayer Crop Science at that time. It's been about five years ago now. And in that entire time at Bayer, I've been working in our uh, seed treatment uh, research and development, as well as some technical support for the commercial organization from time to time. I always think it's interesting, Nick, we talk to people and for the podcast and also just in general, how many people start off their college career with one thing in mind and really end up in something seemingly completely different. There might be some similarities, but uh, I, I think for any of the younger generation that might be out there listening, they're just starting their college career or whatever. Um, you know, it's always important to be open to other opportunities because you and, and many of us are not exactly doing what we probably expected we were going to be doing when you're we 18. Absolutely. I think my uh, first, one of my first jobs when I was younger was detasseling corn because you could do it when you were pretty young, you know, earlier than maybe age 16 even. And I can remember coming home from those long days. I didn't grow up on a farm or anything. And, you know, I was covered in corn pollen and I had a rash and it was just long, <laughs> tough days. And I thought to myself, I mean, there's no way uh, I want to end up in agriculture. Uh, but I found a path back there and it's been a real blessing because um, it's a great industry to be in and yeah, keeping your uh, eyes and, and mind open to possibilities in, in any number of industries, I think is a good thing for, for people to do. So, yeah, absolutely. So today we, we have you here with us to talk about seed treatments. You're kind of a seed treatment expert and um, we, we think about seed treatments. They've been used on a lot of crops for a long time. We can see over the last 10 years or so, they've really been widely adopted in soybeans. And we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of the benefits from that, especially from the adoption of early planting and the yield benefits that provides. And that wasn't able to be done before the widespread use of seed treatment. So, but going back farther, can you tell us about the history of seed treatments and how they got started? Sure, uh, yeah, we can, we can go back pretty far uh, if you want to. So. Really, the first kind of reliable report of a seed treatment dates back to uh, around the mid-1600s. So um, there's kind of this story that's told about a ship um, that was carrying grain that ran aground near Bristol, England. And I guess being frugal, a lot of that grain, uh, that wheat grain was salvaged. And uh, it was noticed that the grain that was grown from this um, or, or the crop that was grown from this grain that was exposed to salt water was relatively free of wheat smut, which at the time in England was a pretty significant disease that, that farmers were battling. So um, some astute or observant farmer uh, noticed that and the brining, as it's called, of wheat continued on for you know about 100 years. So seed treatments actually go back uh, uh, quite a ways. Um, Around 100 years later uh, from that, so we're talking like mid-1700s, so, uh, you know, the colonies are well-established, getting ready to sign the Declaration of Independence over here. Uh, somebody gets this idea to use this compound called blue vitriol uh, to treat wheat seeds. So, uh, yeah, so keep in mind now we are coming off of like peak alchemy, right? So blue vitriol, it's copper sulfate is what it is. And it was, you know, used in alchemy for uh, uh, supposedly turning, you know, common metals into precious ones. Of course, I don't think they had a lot of success with that. But <laughs> there was some success in preventing seed that was treated with blue vitriol or copper sulfate from getting smut. So the, the history of seed treatments is really focused in um, plant diseases more so than insects. So that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. 
Um, you fast forward from there um, around the turn of the uh, 20th century, so uh, 1890s, we are starting to get products like formaldehyde being recommended to use as speed treatment. So there's a lot of work being done in, in the chemical world, so in chemistry around this time. Uh, formaldehyde, of course, was, was useful as a seed treatment against diseases in wheat, but it's important to keep in mind that things like copper sulfate and formaldehyde are, you know, um, have the potential to, to harm the seeds that you're actually treating. So we have this term in the seed treatment world called phytotoxicity. And what that means is phyto, of course, refers to plants and toxicity refers to toxicity. And so anytime you use a seed treatment, there's an element of risk that that product might harm the seed. And so that's something you need to be careful for. You're moving on into kind of the, the 1900s, um, you know, Around 1915 or so, we start to see the introduction of organic mercury compounds. So Bayer actually produced one of these. It was called Upsilon. So, so Bayer's been in the seed really? treatment business for a long time. So yeah. like what year would we be in? That would put us in really around 1915. Okay. So around 1915 is when that product was introduced. And these uh, are called organic mercury compounds. And these are organic because they contain carbon molecules, obviously. So carbon, hydrogen, as well as mercury that was attached. And so these are effective against diseases as well. Um, explosion of chemistry um, and chemistry discovery being done during World War II. And so uh, one of the things that we see happen during that time as well is this huge need to feed um, the war efforts, both in the United States and in other areas of the world. So uh, for example, in the United States, um, there's this huge adoption of hybrid corn. So you guys actually probably know this history maybe better than I do. But uh, prior to World War II, there was really not very much hybrid corn being used. Fast forward to the end of World War II, half or more of all corn seed being produced is hybrid corn, and it's a more valuable commodity. That, that seed to produce hybrid corn is pretty valuable. And so treatments are almost kind of required uh, to preserve that value there, protect those plants from diseases. And then during the mid um, 1900s, we see the um, you know, adoption of some of these other chemicals that were developed during World War II. These are called organic chlorine molecules. Um, things like aldrin, heptachlor, DDT, some of these things are being applied as seed treatments as well. But really not until kind of the 1990s when we see um, neonicotinoids get registered um, do we start to see the beginnings of, of what we think of as modern seed treatments in, in corn and soybean. So that's kind of, kind of a, a long uh, history, I guess, of, of seed treatments uh, and seed treatment development. I think of mammalian toxicity too. It almost seems like the way things start out, like the, that there, there's no way that those chemical compounds were safe for the applicators, the people applying them on the seeds. And then you get all the way to the neonics, you know, and it's a, a plant-based biopesticides so yeah absolutely so there's an element of the types of formulations that were used as well so um, that upsilon product I mentioned from 1915 was a liquid uh, but during the 1920s dust formulations became widespread in use so these would be things that farmers could apply um, extremely dusty right and so you're taking these um, very toxic compounds putting them into a dust formulation and then you know the handling on those is going to be um, pretty hazardous from, from a right. user standpoint. And so uh, following World War II, slurry formulations where you're applying it as a liquid base become more popular. And yes, the uh, neonicotinoids um, is, are a great example of a products that have really low 
um, toxicity to mammals such as humans. And so um, really favorable from a, uh, from a user safety profile standpoint. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that evolution of, and, and there's a lot of products like that as we've learned more over time, how we've been able to take things that are, you know, you talked about using formaldehyde and mercury and things like that. Um, you know, moving to something that with learning more and understanding more, moving to something that's a lot safer. It's also interesting, you know, I, I'm always kind of fascinated by history and inventions and, and creations and things like that. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that the first seed treatments, you know, you're talking four or 500 years ago, were actually discovered kind of by accident. And it, it's really fascinating when you, when you learn and look into history, how many inventions and things were almost kind of dumb luck that came about. Yeah, I, it's extremely interesting. I mean, you think about um, the origins of seed treatments stemming from a shipwreck. I mean, w did the captain maybe fall asleep at the wheel? And then because of that, now we use <laughs> seed treatments yeah, right. on <laughs> all corn and most soybeans. I mean, that's pretty incredible to think about. And I think you're right, Jason. I think you think about these um, scientific discoveries that happen almost seren you know, from serendipity or by accident. And it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting uh, to think about. So. What was that product? Blue Blue Vitriol. It was a trademark that for the next, <laughs> next pair of products. Well, if it, could, if it could turn tin into gold, then uh, you know, that'd be great. But I don't think it was very uh, effective for that. And uh, you know, a blue stems from the fact, you know, copper molecules, you know, that's kind of yeah. the color that they take. So um, yeah, very, very interesting. So. so Nick, we talk about, you know, you talked about a lot about history and you kind of alluded to the more modern seed treatments. And, and one of the ones that Preston mentioned was neonics and sometimes neonics, neonicotinoid get really a bad rap in the press, obviously unfairly in a lot of cases. Uh, can you talk about them just a little bit, how they were developed and where they uh, came from? Yeah, sure. So uh, neonicotinoid, I mean, one of the words that you probably kind of, um, can recognize when you say that out loud is uh, nicotine. And so nicotine has been used as kind of a botanical, I guess, pesticide uh, going back a long time. And so one of the um, characteristics of nicotine when used as a pesticide is that it has a, a good affinity for mammalian nerve cells, I guess, for lack of a, a more detailed description. So a lot of times uh, insecticides are targeting nerve tissue. So nerves are essentially just capacitors relaying electrical charge between each other. That's how, you know, you think. And as I move my hands right now in front of you, that's, that's how it's all working. It's conducting nerve signals. And so nicotine is going to be one of these um, compounds used as a pesticide because of its um, natural uh, abilities or I guess characteristics. And it, it's, it can be pretty dangerous uh, when handled by um, humans, just for the fact that it's such a high uh, binding affinity for our, our nerve cells. Um, neonicotinoids were developed um, from kind of the mid to late 20th century um, and kind of first registered starting around the 1990s. These have a much higher binding affinity for insects' uh, nervous cells. So. So rather than, you know, binding, um, you know, selectively to, to mammalian type yeah. uh, nerve uh, cells, and this is an oversimplification, but you get the idea here, uh, they're more active against insects. And so you can imagine that anytime we're using an insecticide by farmers, 
it would be nice to use one that was um, more active against insects than against its human handlers. And so that's kind of, that's kind of where that uh, comes from. I will point out um, in terms of neonicotinoids and costs, benefits, that type of thing, um, I, I'm not a huge, uh, I don't have a, a lot of good detail about some of the, um, you know, kind of non-target effects, bees and things like that, as maybe some of your other guests that you've had on the podcast. So um, you had a, a, the, the honeybee scientist from University of Florida, right? Yeah on the show. So that was really a great um, one that kind of talked about some of that stuff. My um, work with neonicotinoids and these kinds of things really focuses on kind of the economic benefits for farmers um, and things like that. So I feel like that would be a good anti-smoking ad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So neonics are a huge part of modern agriculture today. That's kind of the insecticide component is one bucket of the seed treatment um, portfolio. Uh, for the listeners that aren't involved with ag, could you kind of break down maybe some of the other components of seed treatments from like the, the nematode, the disease and anything sure. else? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I think it's important to recognize too that like um, when you sometimes ask uh, maybe a farmer, you know, do you use uh, treated seed or do you use fungicide treated seed? Sometimes the answers that you get is, yeah, I use treated seed or no, I don't use treated seed. And I don't think that that does justice to the level of complexity that exists in seed treatments. So like you mentioned, there are multiple components. So seed treatments, uh, a modern seed treatment is going to typically contain uh, at a minimum um, a couple different fungicides. So these are going to be active against true fungi. So uh, things like Rhizoctonia, Fusarium, some of these other diseases that cause damping off of seeds. So um, in addition to uh, those, you're going to have a fungicide in there that's going to be effective against these uh, organisms called uh, oomycetes. And what those are, are they're water molds. So they're kind of like fungi, uh, but they are really uh, commonly observed. They, they need a lot of moisture to kind of germinate and move around. Um, these would be things like Pythium and Phytophthora. And, and so, so you have those kind of two things covered. Um, a traditional uh, kind of a modern seed treatment is also going to include an insecticide, which we've kind of touched on as well. And those are kind of forming the, the base kind of level of protection that, that farmers typically uh, want. In addition to that, and, and increasingly more so, we're starting to discover that there can be benefits from adding other types of products. So one of the uh, most important pathogens of soybean in the United States is the soybean cyst nematode. So this is um, a nematode is a uh, kind of a microscopic roundworm that's going to be located um, generally below ground. And so as those seeds germinate and grow, these nematodes are going to attack those uh, germinating seedlings. Um, they will establish a feeding site and um, rob yield from that plant as it grows. And the interesting thing about soybean cyst nematode in particular is that you can lose a significant amount of yield and not even notice that there's anything wrong. So you look above ground, um, and the plants look healthy, green, no issues, um, you know, during a normal growing season. And you may have lost up to 30% of your yield. Pretty incredible to think about that that can be going on. And soybean cyst nematode is not the only one. Um, there are lesion nematodes. And they have these interesting sounding names like sting and lance and dagger nematodes that, um, as, as you can imagine, have a really negative impact on the crop. 
And so because of that, um, nematicides are becoming increasingly part of standard seed treatment packages. So, um, you know, many of the major seed companies and, and chemical manufacturers are starting to apply these um, to their seed. So, so that's kind of another pest focused treatment that's being applied. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, um, there's a huge push now toward plant growth promotion and products that can promote plant growth. So if you think about um, a seed treatment, the whole point of it is to protect the seed and the seedling during its most vulnerable time of development. So if you plant a seed and then let's say the temperatures turn kind of cold and wet, it's possible that that seed may not germinate for weeks Right. So if you think about this spring, I had corn that sat uh, corn seed that sat underground in trials for um, two and a half, three weeks before yeah, it even yeah. germinated. Yeah. And and that's um, problematic because you've got at the same time, you may have fungi that are on and around that seed in contact with it. that don't care that it's cold or wet. Right. They may favor those things. And so anytime we can provide a product on the seed that may enhance germination and may enhance growth to get that seed out of that vulnerable state, that's gonna provide a, a lasting legacy benefit to that crop. Okay, and so these types of products might be bacteria that can form a symbiosis with the plant, or it may be bacteria that can break down organic matter and, and make nutrients available to that plant as it grows. Uh, it may also be plant hormones or hormone mimics that are applied to those seeds that uh, can promote uh, growth and early uh, stand establishment. So that's kind of what you've got. You've got your fungicides and then your fungicides that target oomycetes. You've got your insecticides, obviously, to target insects, nematicides, and then um, these plant growth promoting uh, compounds. But that's not the end of it because, of course, if you've got these on the uh, seed, you need to keep them there. And so because of that, we also include polymers. So it's kind of like a glue that goes around all these molecules in the slurry and keeps them on the seed. Hmm. What you don't want is, you know, an insecticide being applied and then being dusted off as these seeds are being, you know, touching each other on the way to being planted. And so polymers are a part of that. In addition to that, you can also include seed lubricants. So, um, you know, typically a farmer might add a seed lubricant as he's planting the seed. Uh, but you can do that as a seed treatment as well, kind of maybe a wax type lubricant that will promote flow through the planter. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you've got to add a coloring. So that's the reason that treated seeds are colored purple or red or green. Um, you don't want anyone to confuse the fact that that seed may have these compounds that are pesticidal on it. And you don't want that to enter the grain channel or um, anyone to kind of see that seed and, and think it's for um, consumption or something like that. So. Right. There's a lot on the seed, right? There's a lot to that, yeah. Huh. I, I think it's a it's an interesting um, concept that maybe some people may not consider or may not have thought of before, but you know, plants are just like people and there's a lot of diseases and a lot of things that can attack plants and it can do one of two things. It can either kill them outright, which obviously we're trying to prevent, but, the, but also the things that don't kill them outright can often cause them to not thrive, right? You mentioned nem nematodes and things like that that don't necessarily kill the plant. You can't necessarily tell it, but it definitely impacts yield. And we're talking millions or even billions of dollars in economic losses each year from these, these diseases and these other things that impact plants. And so really with the seed treatments, we're trying to keep those uh, plants healthy from the very beginning, just like, you know, as a, as a child is growing up, we want to keep their health uh, as good as possible. 
um, to set them up for not, you know, these adult diseases that might come in uh, when someone's more susceptible. So it's kind of a interesting correlation there, I think. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly the, uh, the analogy I would use. Um, protection during the most vulnerable stages uh, provides a lasting legacy benefit. So, you know. And this also reminds me of our last interview with Jeff Brown, a plug for our previous episode where he was talking about high end yield potential in corn and how the framework for that is set in like the first, you know, month of corn uh, stand establishment. So um, all the supports just making sure you have that initial stand, because if you don't, uh, your top end yield potential is gone at the very onset of the growing season. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned polymers. Uh, I was kind of curious, what are some of the new advanced technologies around uh, seed treatment? So like for po polymers, for instance, how are these newer technologies impacting efficacy of the products or safety of the products? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, just like any, um, any realm of technology, there is constant advancement uh, going on. And um, Bayer, just like all the other companies, has active discovery programs. And so um, there are a couple of interesting, I think, trends that are kind of going on right now. One is uh, toward the selection of products that might be less general and more specific. So for example, you can use maybe an insecticide that has um, an effect on all insects, or potentially you could develop an insecticide that has an effect on just a certain grouping of insects. So not all insects are, are the same. They don't feed the same ways, that, these types of things. So there's always this increasing um, march toward being more specific with the products that we are bringing to market. With that being said, there's also a, a huge interest right now in this idea of biologicals. Mm -hmm. So seed treatments can take a number of different forms. They can be traditional chemistries, so things like fungicides, insecticides like um, metalaxyl or these other things that have been around a while. Um, but increasingly, you can use compounds that are derived from um, organisms, so microbes. By, by that, I would mean just bacteria or fungi that may have some beneficial um, effect against the pest. So one example of this outside of the seed treatment world, of course, is BT corn. So corn that's engineered to express a toxin that is, um, you know, that targets things like corn rootworm or European corn borer. Same thing can go on as a seed treatment if you use a microbe that has activity against insects or, or even diseases, okay? Those bacteria or fungi can be applied um, either as living organisms, which is pretty incredible that you can formulate and treat and deliver a living organism to a plant. That's, that's pretty incredible. Or they could also be devitalized, so they don't, maybe they don't have to be living. Um, or maybe you don't need the entire microbe. Maybe you just need an enzyme that it produces. So you can produce the microbe in fermentation and then kill it and just extract and concentrate the enzyme or protein of interest and apply those to the seed. So those are, those are pretty interesting um, technological advancements. Like I mentioned, the polymers and, and the lubricants to um, aid in some of the mechanical things that are going on uh, with seed treatments. That's not only to increase uh, performance for growers, um, 
that all, some of that also occurs to enhance our stewardship efforts. So if you think about it as a basic manufacturer, Bayer has a vested interest in making sure that its products are used in an extremely sustainable way. And so what we don't want is to just produce an insecticide and, and say, hey, growers go use this, and then they're using it in a way that maybe is incompatible with um, bee health or health of aquatic environments. And so by developing advanced polymers, by developing advanced seed lubricants, we can ensure that those products stay where they need to be, locked on the seed until they're um, planted in the ground. So that, that delivers a, long, a good benefit, both for growers as well as us and society at large. So yeah. that's kind of some focus areas of where we're developing um, right now. Yeah. So obviously taking all those things into account, ensuring the safety, ensuring the efficacy, ensuring the long-term viability of a product, there's a lot that goes into producing a product like this. Can you talk just a little bit about what it takes to bring a, a new product to market? Well, I think it's probably no surprise it takes time and money. <laughs> so when you think about um, the, I guess the commercial, the process of commercializing um, a product, it's no different for seed treatment than, than any other uh, type of um, pesticide or agricultural product. So, uh, and this is going to be speaking pretty general. So this isn't specific to bear or anything like that. Um, typically what you've got is some sort of engine of discovery. And these would be, you know, going on in some kind of headquarters. So Bayer has a headquarters in Monheim where we will generate um, candidates or leads that we are evaluating against certain target pests. So, um, you know, we've got key insects and diseases that we are trying to control. And these are selected because they're indicators of efficacy in other areas. So, for example, if I can kill some beetle, maybe that means that I can also kill these other beetles that would be, that would be good for growers. Um, so we, we develop these leads and, and we um, screen molecules or candidates against them. And so typically if you have some uh, level of activity in kind of a, a bioassay that maybe goes on in a petri dish even, um, then it gets promoted to maybe testing in a greenhouse. So kind of an in, in vivo situation where you've got uh, maybe the you know, the treated seed um, and it, it grows into a plant and you expose it and then to the pest or pathogen and you can um, get your first hints of actual in-plant activity. You know, you, you'll go through that for a few years and then at some point you'll find um, some compounds that are effective and you'll take that out into small scale field trials. This is kind of where I sit in the research organization is kind of giving some of these lead candidates their first appearance into the field. So a lot of times there's very small amounts of chemical. You can imagine um, the trial sizes are pretty low. Uh, in fact, so Preston, you came over and saw the micro plots that we were mm -hmm. using, just essentially tubes that we stick in the ground. So almost recreating a, a greenhouse experiment in, in the field. So very small, uh, just a couple plants tested at a time. And if it shows activity there, then we'll scale it up into small plot research. And then from there, um, if it's effective, we'll um, seek registration from the Environmental Protection Agency and it'll move over to a different part of the organization where you might do large scale field testing, validate yields, um, determine things like um, return on investment uh, for growers, um, set pricing, these sorts of things, and then commercialize it. So you're talking about a process that is going to cost uh, millions of dollars, right? Uh, when you think about all the scientists that are involved, um, as well as all the materials involved in testing plus the reg you know, registration fees. 
and it's going to take, you know, 10 years or more going through that whole pipeline. So, um, yeah, a, a huge invested interest in, in keeping these products, um, useful for growers for a long time to recoup, uh, that investment and, um, a, a very long time spent in, in discovery and development. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like a, just a huge funnel where you start off with millions of products. And then by the time you get to your stage, you're at four or five, maybe, maybe 10, and then to have a commercial product, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that. It'd be, it's kind of crazy to think about scientists in that trait discovery lab. I mean, they probably, if they find something neat and unique, I mean, it could be, it could take until the end of their career before that product actually gets launched as a commercial product. <laughs> yeah, that's extremely hard to, to think about. Um, I've got this colleague of mine, I'll give a shout out, um, Kevin Bug, and he works in our Seed Growth Technology Center in St. Louis. And he talks about what he calls HAT projects. And so a HAT project is a molecule that you've worked on. You, you've seen it kind of as a numbered compound, maybe in the greenhouse, and it goes all the way through to commercialization where you start seeing promotional material being made, right? Hats yeah. that you would give growers, so uh. use Olivo or use Pancho Otivo, these types of things. And, um, and so he calls those hat projects. And so far in my five years, I've been a part of things that I think are on their way to hat projects. Uh, but I still have yet to have one that I can, I guess, call my baby that I've ushered through that whole process. So pretty interesting. So you mentioned the product pipeline and how uh, our company, other companies have a robust pipeline where we're always trying to generate new products. How do you view the future as far as seed treatments go? What are some changes in practices or, or do you see any changes on the horizon as far as the use of seed treatments? From a development standpoint, you know, you specifically kind of called out development there. I, one of the things that I'm seeing a lot of right now is kind of this like startup culture that's going on. So um, you see a lot, of, you hear a lot in the news if you follow any kind of financial, um, you know, ongoings about like uh, startups and IPOs for smaller tech companies and, and uh, biotech companies. And so one of the things from a development standpoint that I think is a trend is that you see more smaller companies developing a product and then pitching it to larger companies for, you know, deployment on their seed portfolio. So that's a trend I, that I've seen kind of increase in recent years is um, things things maybe um, that aren't coming into our development funnel, like you mentioned, in a traditional way, they come in from the side. Yeah. So they've already done some of the proof of concept, concept testing, um, and then you know they can be you know faster to market because of that. So Nick, as a farmer, uh, a lot of farmers think, hey, like, yeah, I've got treated seed or I've got untreated seed. Treated seed means um, it's colored different. Um, I don't think there's a lot of comprehension of the benefits of those seed treatments. So like what, how do you qualify, you know, the benefits from maybe a monetary perspective of uh, a seed treatment? It's a good question. And it's one that can actually be kind of hard to do. So, um, so from the standpoint of a farmer, um, you know, if you put out a seed treatment that has a, a fungicide or an insecticide, something like that, the benefit is going to depend on, the level of insect or disease pressure in his field, right? These are products that, you know, in the absence of the pests we're trying to manage, um, there's not gonna be a huge benefit to them, okay? So you can, you can look at it in a couple of different ways. So one of the ways you can do this is by looking at trials that have been done, utilizing seed treatments, and, uh, you know, that record things like yield. So for example, if I put out 100 trials targeting, um, you know, 
some using seed treatments and then the other treatments would be, you know, untreated seed. And I look at the difference there. On average in corn, you're going to see something around a seven and a half percent increase in yield. So if you think about 200 bushel corn, um, that's going to be something like 15 bushels, something like that on average. Wow. In soybean, um, you know, obviously yields are a little lower in soybean. So let's say 60 bushels to the acre, just kind of, you know, an average. Um, you're going to probably observe around a two bushel benefit, something like that. Um, and that's, again, looking at a huge number of trials over a long period of time to try and understand what that benefit is. Um, and so within that, um, within those numbers, though, are going to, a lot of things are going to be hit. What's going to be hidden is, you know, maybe the grower in Kentucky who had high levels of southern corn rootworm affecting his corn early on and experienced a 30, 40, 50 bushel yield benefit. Um, or maybe, um, you know, a, bean leaf, a field of soybeans in central Illinois that had bean leaf beetles. Maybe it was the earliest planted field. And because of that, it was at extremely high risk of that overwintering population of bean leaf beetles coming out and feeding on it. Um, so there's some defoliation that goes on there, um, some yield loss associated with that potentially, as well as um, propagation of maybe bean pod model virus that that insect is known to uh, vector. So uh, the benefit in that case might be you know much greater than two bushels to the acre. What's also being left out of that conversation when you look at these big broad averages is the fact that a grower may have used a seed treatment um, to protect against Phytophthora or something, but the environmental conditions weren't there to promote Phytophthora. And so in that situation, there maybe wasn't a benefit monetarily to using that seed treatment. So you have to think about it in a really holistic way. Um, so part of the problem um, that farmers have uh, when they decide whether or not to use seed treatments is that when they make that decision, there's really no way for them to know whether or not they're going to have these specific pest problems. Um, so in a traditional sense, you know, from an IPM standpoint, um, a lot of times you would rely on scouting um, to assess the numbers of insects and then apply some treatment to remediate those numbers or keep them from um, surpassing some economic level. Okay. It's difficult to do that for pests like um, that we're targeting with seed treatments, like wireworm, for example. These are extremely, uh, you know, they live underground and they have, uh, you know, many, you know, tens of species that can affect, um, you know, corn or even soybeans. Um, they have multiple generations. They move up and down in the soil profile. It's very hard for a farmer to understand what are their precise numbers. And so, in these cases, we're not really talking about threshold-based IPM. We're talking about risk-based IPM. And so a grower is gonna have to make a decision based on his experience in that field of how likely he is to have these problems, um, whether they be disease or insects. And so because of that, um, you get you know, farmers with different levels of risk tolerance. And so um, you get these benefits beyond um, money. Okay. So for example, a benefit beyond money might be a grower um, who uses treated seed. Maybe he thinks he's at some risk, but not total risk for some insect, but he can have peace of mind by using that seed treatment. What is that worth to a grower? That's hard to pin down. So, so you're basically that. talking about insurance there. 
you're, you're talking about an insurance approach um, to, to that in that specific regard. But there's, there are other benefits too. So for example, we talked about neonicotinoids being much safer for um, growers to handle. So for example, if I was in, in corn and I didn't want to use a seed treated insecticide, but I still might be worried about those insects, what might I use? Well, I might use um, an older chemistry, um, something like a pyrethroid that you apply in furrow, something like that, um, and, and apply that um, instead. It's gonna give me maybe a similar level of protection, but it's gonna expose myself and maybe my, uh, my workers that I have on my staff to you know, moving around this powder insecticide that you're applying in furrow. It's much easier and safer for that grower to just use the treated seed instead. So what is the value monetarily of having workers that maybe aren't exposed to a seed tree, uh, I'm sorry, to an older chemistry? I don't know. Growers put that value on that when they make those decisions to buy that treated seed or not. And those are, those are personal decisions. And so, so the other, the other part of this, when you look at these big, large averages of, you know, corn maybe gets a 12 to 15 bushel benefit and soybean a two bushel benefit. What that, what that leaves out of the question is that these treatment decisions are ultimately made on a hyper local scale on a farm by farm or field by field or even infield by infield um, type of situation. And, and that's, that's where the difficulty comes in with, with, with seed treatments. So, yeah. You know, and I think you talk about the benefits beyond money, but even when we talk about the income piece of it, I think, and, and I mentioned this at the beginning, but I think that, you know, when we talk about soybeans, especially maybe the seed treatments, you know, you talk about a couple bushels, but there's another piece to that that they've, as I mentioned, enabled earlier planting. And the earlier planting really increases yield. And that's not necessarily seen, you know, when we do trials, we maybe plant early with and without seed treatment. And we see, well, what's it worth? But we don't see that the fact that farmers are planting soybeans a month earlier than they used to and getting a great deal more yield potential out of that as a direct benefit of the seed treatment, but it really is a lot of times. Yeah. And, and those are potentially riskier situations um, that they're going into. And so it's not necessarily just that as well. I mean, you think about like um, farmers have the ability by using seed treatments to change their management practices in ways that are suitable for their interests. So for example, planting early, Jason, that's a great example that you just gave. Um, the other thing you might consider, you know, soybeans that are not treated, um, you're going to have a lot of attrition to those seeds. So you're going to lose some. So if you use a seed treatment, fungicide and insecticide, almost all those seeds are going to come up. And so you can dial in what you term your economically optimal seeding rate. So you maybe can plant fewer plants per acre. Okay. So that's another way that you can uh, realize that benefit. Um, and, and these types of uh, practices, you know, so another one might be using a no-till situation. So one of the things, or, or cover crops. So sometimes these agronomic practices that are good from a sustainability standpoint, water quality, nutrient management, may have negative implications for pests, right? They, you know, a, a no-till or a cover cropping situation might introduce more residue on top of that field. And that residue may harbor um, disease inoculum or pests. And so by using a seed treatment, you can adopt those practices that are potentially good for the environment, as well as raise a crop that you know is going to emerge and, and grow reliably and healthy. 
So we're always fascinated by history and the history of things. And I think this story that we've told today is very interesting. And we're getting a little long on time here, I think. But um, we also like to look to the future. So what products do you see coming down the road? Are there technologies that are going to kind of be game changers as far as seed treatments? Is it going to be incremental changes? Are there things that you see that you think are going to make a big impact? What, what is your view of the things coming down the road? That's a great question. Um, you know, I'm a total science nerd. Uh, I'll be honest with you. When I, you know, get to the hotel at night when I'm traveling, I'll, you know, turn on NASA TV on my phone. I just, I'm so <laughs> fascinated by developments and things that are going on. Um, and it seems like we're lucky, we're spoiled. Every week there's something new that could potentially be leveraged for farmers to support them. So some of the things are operational, right? So Things like, um, you know, CubeSats and, and increasing broadband capabilities for farmers, um, the use of drones and remote sensing technology and DNA barcoding of, you know, environmental DNA. These are going to enable better and more accurate scouting, which I think is probably one of the things that inhibits, um, you know, a more precise use of seed treatments uh, as it currently stands. And so some of these technologies from an operational standpoint, I think are going to promote more precision. Certainly variable rate type of um, equipment is going to allow for adoption of cool tactics. So, for example, could you imagine a planter that maybe had multiple um, hybrids on it with multiple different levels of seed treatment that was being dropped in response to um, soil sampling that went on in the fall or spring for the amount of wireworm DNA that is in that field? Pretty cool stuff, I think, from an operational standpoint. From a product standpoint... You know, I think there's going to be a continued march toward the use of biologicals that are going on. And one of the interesting things about biologics is that they are derived from living organisms and therefore can be subject to manipulation. So, for example, you can introduce maybe toxins into a microbe and apply that to a seed to target maybe a new pest that's coming online, like the soybean gall midge out west or something like that. Um, or, for example, you could use maybe a more precise approach like CRISPR modify an organism, apply that to a seed, and then all of a sudden you don't have to worry about insects or fungi that are out there. So some of these advances that are going on in the general science realm, I think have a high probability of being successfully leveraged for agriculture. And we're seeing that not only in seed treatments, but also in hybrid development and breeding and even equipment. So that's kind of um, I guess my crystal ball if I had to look into it. Well, Nick, we appreciate your time coming here on the podcast today. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I think we've both learned a lot. I just want to thank you for your time and hopefully we can have you on again, maybe to uh, talk about seed treatments in the future. Yeah, I, I'd love to. I, I really appreciate being asked to come on. It's not often you get asked to come on a uh, podcast where you are also a fan. So that's been pretty cool. And I'm happy to come back anytime. Um, you know, uh, we got new developments and things happening all the time. So it'd be cool. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.